From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Sometimes medications for people with epilepsy are not completely effective in controlling seizures. Today, I'm speaking about surgical options and the use of neurostimulators with Dr. Sharam Izadyar. He's an epileptologist, which means a neurologist who specializes in epilepsy. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Izadyar. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, just to be clear, um, the therapies that we're going to be talking about today, these are for people with uncontrolled epilepsy, and that's a rather small percentage of people with epilepsy. Is that right? Um, it, it is a percentage of patients um, that probably is um, not as small as sometimes we think. Um, so there are, on average, about... 30% of patients with epilepsy that eventually medications may not completely control their seizures. And this group are referred to, um, their epilepsy is referred to as medically refractory epilepsy. All right. Well, what can surgery offer someone with medically refractory epilepsy? Um, so the concept of epilepsy surgery is um, if we can, in a certain percentage of this group of refractory uh, epilepsy uh, patients, if we can identify or we can uh, find the area of the brain that is generating the seizures, and if we can determine if that area of the brain is in an area of the brain that does not have a high critical function um, and is amenable to being resected, so removing that area of the brain, that small area of the brain, can lead to better seizure control or at times uh, seizure freedom. Um, so, so this process in itself requires a, a good amount of workup uh, with various methods, uh, which I can um, explain very briefly about those. Let me jump in and ask you, though, how do you go about zeroing in? Because you have to get really precise on where in the brain the seizures are originating, right? That's absolutely correct. Um, so we need to be very precise and we need to pinpoint the area of the brain that is potentially causing the seizures. And in order to do that, um, there are again several uh, tests and, and monitorings that we need to do. Um, and one way to, um, to, to make this determination a bit more precise sometimes is uh, recording the brain waves directly from the surface of the brain or even uh, from inside the brain. And in order to do that, sometimes we need to uh, put some recording electrodes inside the brain or on the surface of the brain with, uh, with, with a surgical procedure and then record the brain waves and record the seizures in order to be um, precise in finding the location of the um, brain that is generating the seizures. And just to be clear, you're an epileptologist. You're not a neurosurgeon, but you work closely with a partner in neurosurgery for these types of operations, right? 
That's exactly correct. So approach to epilepsy surgery is a team approach. Uh, it consists of a collaboration between a neurosurgeon and epileptologist, neuroradiologist, basically radiologist who specializes or subspecializes in neurology, neuropsychologists, um, and uh, so basically it's a team approach. That's correct. Can surgery be a permanent solution for someone where after the operation they don't need epilepsy medicine and they don't have seizures anymore? It does it does it cure them? In certain patients, um, seizure freedom can be achieved with uh, with epilepsy surgery. Uh, depends on uh, the area of the brain that is causing the seizures, and again, the success of that workup that uh, we talked about briefly. Um, and and one very uh, prominent determining factor of who will be the best responder to epilepsy surgery is if someone has a, a, an identified lesion um, in the imaging of the brain, for example, in MRI of the brain, if we can find a lesion that we suspect that might be the location of seizure generation, and then the subsequent workup line up with that imaging finding uh, that significantly increases the success rate of surgery. That's good to know. Now, um, are there risks to be aware of or side effects from surgery that someone, you know, needs to know about before they sign up for this? Um, like any other invasive procedure, um, there are some risks associated and, and we um, very carefully um, tailor the workup um, based on the findings of the patient, and this will be um, kind of reviewed uh, with them at the time. Uh, but there are, in general, like any other surgery, risk of um, uh, risk of bleeding, for example, in areas of the brain, uh, which is a small risk, uh, but but it's considered one of the risks or risk of infection because um, the skull. Um, is either opened or there are holes made in the skull, so that increases a bit of risk of infection. But all these complications in hands of a good uh, team are, um, are minimized. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Sharam Izadyar. He's an associate professor of neurology at Upstate, and he specializes in the treatment of epilepsy. So I want to talk to you about neurostimulators. What what are those? Neurostimulators are devices that provide a constant electrical pulses that can be delivered to parts, either parts of the brain or um, nerves that eventually uh, go to the brain. So the concept of neurostimulation is that these repeated electrical or cyclic electrical stimulations over a period of time um, in certain patients can provide a better control of seizures and then lead to um, less seizure frequency. How big is a neurostimulator and, and what does it look like? There are there are currently um, the main neurostimulators. Uh, there are three types. Um, one is uh, vagal nerve stimulator, and this um, for 
as, as a general um, introduction to neurostimulation, let me say that neurostimulators usually consist of a battery which, uh, which generates these electrical um, discharges or cyclic electrical discharges. And then this is delivered through a wire and that wire in, um, in case of vagal nerve stimulator is wrapped around one of the nerves um, that is in the neck area, it's, it's called vagus nerve, and that nerve eventually goes to the brain. Um, so the, the, that device delivers that electrical stimulation to the vagus nerve. Uh, whereas there are two other devices called uh, RNS or responsive neurostimulator or deep brain stimulator, DBS, um, they are, the, the wires are inserted inside the brain and they deliver the electrical pulses or the electrical discharges that is generated by the battery to the, to the brain directly. So these are implanted in the patient either un under the skin or in the brain. Um, how long have they been on the market and in use? Um, vagal nerve stimulator or VNS has been around uh, since 1990s, so it has been a while. Um, the other two, um, RNS and DBS, are relatively newer, so they have been, um, all of these, I mean, devices are FDA approved for use in epilepsy. DBS has been around for a longer period of time, but the use of that for epilepsy is a bit newer maybe in the past uh, couple of years that has been approved by FDA. It had some use in other neurological disorders such as Parkinson's disease uh, for, for years, but, but the usage of that in epilepsy is a bit newer. And, and RNS also um, is a bit newer device that uh, approved by, by FDA. Well, as a neurologist specializing in epilepsy, how do you determine which would be best for each patient, whether they need surgery or whether one of these neurostimulators is best? So these all, um, there are several factors that are taken into account. That includes the age of the patient, um, includes also the type of epilepsy they have, uh, depends on the frequency of the seizures, depends on also other um, coexisting medical conditions, for example, uh, including um, mental health um, issues that is present or, or some other um, medical conditions. So all of these uh, determine which would be the best approach for the patient in terms of epilepsy surgery versus neurostimulation. And if neurostimulation, which one? is the best um, device for the particular patient. Is there anything that would just straight out disqualify someone from a, having a neurostimulator? Um, there, there is nothing particularly that excludes anyone um, from, from considering these. Again, there are um, every, every patient before any of these options are considered will undergo a comprehensive evaluation. Um, and uh, but but there is no particular um, um, contraindication. Um, there are certain types of epilepsies that are considered contraindication as it goes um, in in terms of neurostimulation or surgery, and those are 
uh, epilepsies that do not have a specific focus. Um, they're called um, primary generalized or genetic generalized epilepsies. And those basically are seizures that, um, again, start from both hemispheres of the brain at the same time, as opposed to focal epilepsies, which start from one area of the brain. But there are also um, so some, there are some data also that um, the neurostimulators may be effective in primary generalized epilepsies as well, uh, but there's still uh, research is ongoing in that area. Well, can you tell me what's involved? I mean, how big of a surgery is it to have one of these implanted? Um, in case of VNS, it's a fairly um, uh, simple kind of surgery. So the, the battery is in the size of a pacemaker uh, that is implanted uh, under the skin and the chest area and the wire then under the skin goes up to the neck and it's wrapped around the nerve, the vagus nerve that I mentioned in the neck. In case of the other two, RNS and DBS, uh, they're a bit more invasive, but also they are, um, those wires can be inserted in the brain through small holes that are made in the skull. So they're not considered major surgery, um, but compared to the VNS, they're a bit larger surgeries. How soon afterward does a patient notice a difference? Do they, I mean, do they wake up from the procedure feeling different? In, in, in case of epilepsy surgery, um, the results are usually um, seen in a short period of time after the surgery. Whereas for neurostimulators, um, it takes time. Actually, it takes uh, even months or even a couple of years to see the maximum benefit of the neurostimulator because this is the delivery of these uh, electrical cycles and repeatedly and over time is that what, uh, how, how these neurostimulators work. And this is how the mechanism of action of these neurostimulators are. So it, it, it may take um, a longer period of time to see some benefit. Can the patient feel the neuro neurostimulator working? I mean, does it, does it make a noise or, or make any sort of um, sensation that the patient becomes aware of? At the beginning, some patients may feel when, when the stimulator goes off, they may feel some sensation. There are, um, there are, there are many parameters in these devices that are adjustable uh, in terms of the intensity or cycle duration or the pulse width of these electrical discharges that can be adjusted to provide the, um, a comfortable experience for the patient. And, and lots of patients, even if at the beginning they feel some um, of the stimulation over time uh, that uh, dissipates and, and most of the patients do not feel anything after a while. Does it restrict their activities? Can they still, I don't know, go swimming? Can they go through an, a metal detector without it going off? I mean, are there any changes to their lifestyle with a neurostimulator in place? Uh, for the most part, um, the activities that they have been doing, they, it does not impact those activities, um, such as physical activities, sports, and so on that you mentioned. However, metal de detectors um, are similar to pacemakers, are, um, have, have some effect on neurostimulators. So 
explained through the metal de detectors for travels and such, they always have carry with them cards uh, that uh, indicate that they have this device. So um, precautions are taken at the uh, securities at, at the airports and such. Now you mentioned a battery. How does how does the battery get charged? Uh, the life of the battery, on average, um, again depending on the parameters that I mentioned, the settings that we set up, these batteries, um, the average it's something between three to five years. Sometimes a bit lower, a short shorter, or sometimes a bit longer, depending on the settings. But on average, something between three to five years. Uh, the battery needs to be replaced and most of the time the the replacement of the battery is a very simple procedure well if you have a patient who um is an, a candidate for either the surgery or a neurostimulator would you advise them to pick one over the other and and why or why not we usually prefer or recommend um the surgical option um, over the neurostimulation first. So if someone is medically refractory, we usually discuss this uh, surgical option and neurostimulator options with the patients. And depending again on the factors, some patients might be a better candidate for epilepsy surgery. Some patients might be a better candidate for neurostimulator, uh, neurostimulation. But if someone is a candidate for basically both, usually epilepsy surgery has a, a higher rate of success. Well, before we wrap up, let me ask you, do, do you have patients that you've seen whose lives have been improved after they've had the epilepsy surgery or after they've been implanted with a neurostimulator? Absolutely, there are, I, I have um, uh, several patients and my colleagues also um, that have, achieved um, either seizure freedom uh, with either of these methods or significant reduction in seizure frequency. However, I have to mention like any other treatment such as medications, there are again a certain percent of patients that may go through all these workup and do epilepsy surgery or neurostimulation and eventually may not see benefit. Again, those risks versus benefits will be individualized in every patient and we will discuss with them in detail before proceeding. Uh, but definitely there have been patients that successfully had either again seizure freedom or significant seizure um, reduction. Um, and they, that has significantly affected their life and quality of life. Well, I'm really grateful to you for taking time to explain these epilepsy treatments for us. Thank you to Dr. Sharam Azadyar. He's an associate professor of neurology at Upstate who specializes in epilepsy. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.